Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. Let's bring in the man of the hour. He is Bert Flickinger, Managing Director at Strategic Resource Group. Bert, great to welcome you. We're eight months into this pandemic now. We got disappointing data for Halloween in terms of retail sales. What's the one thing that really jumps out at you at the moment as to where we are, where the consumer is? Uh, Consumer, based on the U.S. Department of Commerce uh, reports today, Vani, Disappointing uh, retail numbers, especially uh, clothing and department stores. What really stands out is the big box retailers, uh, Walmart, Costco, uh, BJ's, Target, all doing really well. And the other key thing uh, for Bloomberg team members and listeners is stop at the store uh, today, uh, this week, this weekend to load up on COVID supplies. We're seeing the worst levels of inventory, even worse in March April and COVID in terms of paper supplies, paper towels, bathroom tissue, uh, disinfectant liquids, uh, soaps, disinfectant sprays and wipes. Uh, It's a real panic situation because the brand suppliers are doing a pathetic job supplying the retailers and the out of stocks are reaching unprecedented proportions. So, Bert, what are the retailers telling you about how bad that aspect of their business could get? Uh, Paul, it's, it's, it's going to get really bad because um, companies like Clorox have moved to single-site uh, manufacturing for the total U.S. My alma mater, uh, Procter & Gamble, uh, culled a number of plants with Booz Allen and McKinsey studies. They have insufficient uh, plants too far away from uh, population centers. So as bad as it is, it's going to get worse, and especially going to get worse, Paul, in urban areas where you have smaller stores often supplied by voluntary wholesalers. So the big chains have the procurement power to get what little inventory there is. And then uh, the smart uh, retailers, uh, Walmart, uh, Lowe's, uh, BJ's, Costco, are investing extra working capital and inventory. Uh, But for the big chains that aren't as well capitalized, that uh, can't buy extra inventory up front, it's going to be a real crisis for consumers as well as a number of retail chains. But Bert, we've had eight months to solve this. How is it going wrong all of a sudden, or how is it continuing to go wrong? Why can't Clorox solve this supply chain problem? And and Vani, it's 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 Clorox, it's P and G, it's Kimberly Clark, it's Colgate, it's uh, uh, Ben Ben Kaiser, etc. Because uh, they 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 went uh, to the Asian system of just in time delivery. So when COVID started, they didn't have the raw materials, they didn't have the bottles, they didn't have the cases, they didn't have the truck drivers, they didn't have the warehouses, they didn't have extra inventory. So to put uh, put it out mathematically, uh, Walmart has 156 major distribution centers, including six crisis distribution centers. Clorox, the Procter & Gamble only have uh, one, a few to five uh, in the supply, supply of the U.S. That's completely inexcusable and as uh, one of my mentors, Phil Robinson, who was the director of manufacturing for P&G, cautioned the company about doing this, but it, it really got, got to be greed. And by cu- uh, cutting working capital and uh, uh, cut, cutting uh, CapEx uh, for manufacturing and distribution, they created a crisis, which exacerbates a, a public safety crisis, too, because in New York City, literally, some of the retailers are telling me that 
Uh, seniors have to go to five to ten chains a day to tr- uh, try to get sa- uh, safety-related disinfectants and paper products. And uh, no matter what store they go to, it's double uh, OS or out of stock. All right, so we'll certainly monitor that situation, Bert. We've had a lot of the big retailers report this week and today. What are some of the takeaways here? Uh, the, the big t- uh, takeaway is uh, when, when uh, you pay more, uh, you get more productivity per person, you get higher shopper satisfaction. There's uh, the old adage uh, from my Uncle Dave, you pay peanuts uh, and uh, you, you, you don't get good results. Costco, uh, which pays very well, Walmart, which went from being the worst in terms of pay uh, to the uh, one of the better ones ahead of Target, they have higher retention, and so uh, Walmart's able to deliver to 90% of the U.S. Internet sales up 79%. Wow. Same stores stacked between uh, the Walmart stores and Sam's Club up approximately 7%. And a lot of that's retention, a lot of that's investing in, in working capital and trying to evolve from a Bloomberg cover story co-authored by Shannon Pettypiece and uh, David Voorhees, um, uh, saying uh, Walmart uh, had an out-of-control crime problem that uh, was a nightmare uh, for the police departments across America, and Walmart didn't have sufficient security, hence uh, uh, the El Paso uh, tragic loss of life where uh, dozens of people were gunned down uh, in the Walmart store in El Paso, and as Shannon and David reported, uh, about 200 violent crimes a year. So Walmart's taking corrective action to correct the mistakes uh, that the family made uh, from security, et cetera, uh, to professional management and Walmart's checkmating and gaining on Amazon and from our field work in uh, Bonnie's uh, homeland in Ireland and, uh, as well as Scotland and England. Walmart's learning from the mistakes it made in, in um, the EU uh, and in the UK with ASDA and uh, divested Sayu this week, uh, divested some of its Latin American operations, concentrating online uh, and uh, uh, concentrating on Flipkart in Asia and, and doing things right. So it's, inve- it's investing in growth uh, drives pr- uh, profitable market share growth and profitable sales growth versus the other retailers who are cutting expenses and uh, cutting expenses at a time of COVID is an RX or disaster. How many bankruptcies do we see for the rest of the year? I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Vani, one more time, please. Sorry, I have a mask on. Bankruptcies, how many do we see between now and the end of the year? Uh, bankruptcies, uh, we've, we've had 50 in the last uh, 20 months uh, with Francesca's, hopefully not, uh, but, but uh, sadly probable. We'll probably see another five by the end of the year and another uh, 15 to 20 in the upcoming calendar year. And with the bankruptcies and with with COVID and the shutdowns, uh, the big box operators like Walmart, Costco, BJ's, uh, Target, uh, as well as Amazon, and the hard discounters like Aldi and Lidl uh, really capitalize uh, while the independents and their suppliers are still getting squeezed. Bert, thanks so much for joining us. As always, we appreciate uh, your thoughts and insight into the retail space. Bert Flickinger, Managing Director, Strategic Resource Group, uh, joining us again to kind of give us an update. And it is, Vani, it's just frustrating to see some of those supply chain problems where you can't get some of the basic products. 
again, eight months after we started this. Yeah, I mean, I personally haven't seen it, but I believe Bert when he says that he's always traveling around to, yeah. you know, you eyeball think that different the, stores. You know, they would have built up inventories throughout the supply chain in anticipation of a second wave, which uh, everyone certainly uh, has been expecting. Uh, but we'll have to see how this plays out. You're listening to Bloomberg Markets with Vonnie Quinn and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Well, one of the fastest growing areas in the investment world over the last couple of years have been exchange-traded funds, or ETFs. Ben Slavin, Global Head of ETFs and Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, joins us here. BNY Mellon has $860 billion in assets through across 1,100 ETFs globally, and they work with 53 issuers, so they know what they're talking about when it comes to ETFs. Ben, thanks so much for joining us here. How have ETFs in general performed over this craziness that we've all been experiencing over the last eight or so months? Good morning, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Um, ETFs have shown remarkable resiliency this year. Investor appetite for ETFs keeps growing. U.S. ETF inflow passed $400 billion this year, year to date, which would put us on the second all-time pace for the industry with an outside shot of hitting the all-time record. So really, ETFs have emerged stronger on the other side of the volatility we saw this spring. And the ETF ecosystem to support that growth has also shown remarkable resiliency. Where are they going for the most part, these assets? Well, we've seen strong flows across the board. Um, This year, specifically, we've seen an increase in fixed income ETF flow which are having a very strong year, um, especially in the run-up to the election. Um, In fact, if the mix of assets hold, we will see the first time where fixed-income ETF assets have outpaced equities. Commodities, specifically gold, are also having a very strong year. Um, We also saw some buying and inflow into those products, especially as the price of gold increased earlier in the year. So, Ben, what's, generally speaking, the main attractive point or selling point for an ETF in general? Well, there are several things that are driving the adoption of ETFs. Certainly, fees. ETFs are lower cost across the board compared to other structures. Tax efficiency, transparency, and liquidity are all key drivers of investor adoption of ETFs. We are also seeing a significant growth in the amount of products that are coming to market um, due to investor appetite, um, also due to regulatory changes that are making it easier for issuers to launch. So what you're seeing is an expanded toolkit. And as the adoption of ETFs grow, um, and specifically around the liquidity of ETFs have increased, uh, especially over the last few years, you are seeing investors all the way from retail investors all the way up to large institutional players using ETFs to express their views um, in the market, whether they be strategic or tactical. Ben, just on a slightly separate note, it's been a very strange time for custodian banks. Explain to us why why that is, why custodian banks have been maybe suffering more than others. Well, I, I think from a, you know, from a custody standpoint, um, we are a service provider to the ETF industry. 
And, you know, again, we've seen significant volume on our platform um, based on this increase in ETF adoption, but certainly earlier this year around some of the market volatility where we were seeing very high amount of uh, transaction volume come through our platform. All of that business um, has really, um, really been processed in an automated environment, um, which, you know, really is kind of demonstrates some of the resiliency we saw um, to, to be able to handle all that volume, especially in a work from home environment. So it certainly has put some some strain on the industry to be able to shift um, their operating models um, and also adopt the technology necessary to really support uh, the industry, you know, as it's as it's growing um, and also serve investors, um, you know, who are, again, increasingly looking to use these products to, to express their views on the market. So, Ben, you know, what I like about the ETF space and we have an in-house expert here at Bloomberg, Eric Balchunas, who uh, keeps us up to speed here. There's so many cool sectors and, and really interesting ETF structures to get put in place to follow specific parts of the market. What are some of the ETF sectors that you think you're going to see some of the, the most interest uh, in the next you know year or so? Well, I think there are several trends we're going to see into 2021. Certainly, I mentioned fixed income ETFs, which had a great 2020, and I expect that trend to continue into 2021 especially in a low-rate environment where the thirst for yield will certainly continue by investors. I also expect uh, to see an uptick in actively managed ETFs, both transparent active and non-transparent active. We're seeing a significant amount of our clients at BNY Mellon express interest in launching these kind of products, and we expect to see uh, quite a bit of new launches coming to market, both equities and fixed income. Also, I think it's worth noting we do see a trend, um, as we've seen this year, in the adoption and interest in thematic ETFs, specifically retail investors, which have been driving flow into thematic ETFs this year, and they've become quite popular playing several different types of trends. And also, again, maybe finally, um, ESG um, right. We've seen a record high trend this year, and you know we think investors are increasingly looking for adding uh, risk factors like climate change, governance, socially responsible stewardship yeah. um, as part of their ETF portfolio. Ben, thank you so much for joining today. Ben Slavin is Global Head of ETFs and Asset Servicing at BNY Mellon, and uh, BNY is about 1,100 ETFs globally. This is Bloomberg Markets with Paul Sweeney and Bonnie Quinn on Bloomberg Radio. All right, well, we continue our wonderful lineup on Bloomberg Radio this morning with Alyssa Cutler, who is head of global payments for eBay. Alyssa, thanks for joining and welcome. How difficult has it been to do your job during coronavirus? Good morning. Thank you. Um, you know, it's definitely led to a tremendous amount of adaptation. Um, you know, we launched managed payments uh, virtually, which uh, was not how we planned and not how we did our first pilots in the U.S. and in Germany. But, um, you know, we operate a little bit like a startup inside a larger company of eBay, and uh, the team's been incredibly adaptive, and um, we've successfully launched and continue to grow. So uh, it's, been, it's been a good experience, albeit a little bit different than we expected. Earlier this morning, we heard Anna Botin, the executive chairman of Banco Santander, uh, she had an extraordinary statistic about 80% of their transactions in the month of October 
were digital. It's just extraordinary. So for somebody at eBay, and you think about your managed payments business, first, just tell us what your managed payments business is and where you see the growth going forward. Sure. So in January of 2018, um, we shared our intention to intermediate or manage payments. Um, and simply that's driven by creating the best experience for our buyers and sellers. Um, historically, obviously, eBay and PayPal were part of the same company. Um, and we, we basically outsourced all payment uh, activities to PayPal. And every seller that came on to list and sell on eBay needed to establish a relationship with PayPal as well. By managing payments, we bring that all in-house, and our sellers register with us, inclusive of payments, and get on their way with selling, and it allows us to offer um, a multitude of forms of payments uh, to our buyers all over the world. And as you noted, during COVID, so much has moved online and digital, um, so the convergence of timing for us has been tremendous as we're able to now control the experience end-to-end for our buyers and sellers and ensure that our buyers all over the world um, are increasingly having the forms of payment that they demand uh, to shop with. So give us more detail on that. What exactly are the platforms that you use and and what do buyers seem to prefer these days? Yeah, so historically we were limited by whatever forms of payment were inside the PayPal wallets. And as we move volume into us at eBay managing payments, our buyers have access to not only cards and, of course, PayPal as, as a form of payment, um, but uh, digital wallets uh, like Apple Pay and Google Pay, which is, uh, we've seen explosive demand for as more and more not only moves online, but through, through mobile applications, particularly with, with younger generations. And as we've launched into Germany, for example, there's a lot more bank-based uh, payments uh, that are out there, and so we've been able to introduce those. Um, Afterpay in Australia, uh, a growing trend uh, of folks wanting to pay over over time. And as we continue to launch around the world, we'll be able to introduce those local forms of payment that uh, the shoppers expect to use anywhere they might be in, say, Japan or France or Canada. We want our buyers to find those local forms of payment that they are familiar with. Uh, locally uh, across our platform as well. Alyssa, how big is your managed payment business within eBay and and kind of what are the growth rates you guys are experiencing? Yeah, so we have been limited by an operating agreement from the separation with PayPal for the past five years. That just expired in mid-July this past summer. As we are limited to just 10% in two markets, U.S. and Germany, as we crossed uh, that transom in July, we launched across five markets, and we've been scaling very, very rapidly. We're over 340,000 sellers as we wrapped Q3, um, and we are now processing uh, a little over 20% of our global on-platform GM, GMV on the platform, and we're continuing to add more sellers and more volume every single day. We will expand into France, Italy, and Spain at the beginning of next year and continue to roll around the world throughout 2021. We expect to be largely complete uh, at the beginning of 2022, where we will then represent um, $2 billion in revenue for the company and $500 million in operating income. So um, we are continuing to charge along very, very rapidly, and we're really pleased with our results. That's really phenomenal. Uh, What are the greatest challenges that you see ahead? What are the, the challenges to your business? 
So there's, we're, we're in a very dynamic world right now with, with COVID and a lot of uncertainty. We are squarely focused on serving our customers. When our customers win, we win. We want to continue to provide them great experiences. Managing payments is a key pillar um, in a modern managed marketplace and in our, our tech-led reimagination to continue to innovate on behalf of our buyers and sellers and ensure that our, our sellers are having velocity our buyers are finding what they're looking for, that great deal, that unique find, and they're zipping through checkout and getting on with their day. Hey, Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us. Just a fascinating uh, story there for eBay. Uh, Alyssa Cutright, head of global payments for eBay. Uh, they're based in San Jose, California. And, you know, Vani, just, I mean, just extraordinarily good timing, you could argue, for really launching a, a digital fintech business at a time when uh, people are spending more and more time online, transacting more and more uh, online and, and doing it digitally. Yeah, you'd love to know about the, you know, the, the cutting up of the pie. So what percentage or portion of percentage per payment does uh, does this business get? And, you know, how much of a middleman is it? Is it also the middleman where Stripe is a middleman, you know? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, There are uh, different platforms out there for sure, but uh, I think the eBay strategy here is obviously to tie in the activity on the eBay platform um, with uh, the payments business as well, cut out that third person, uh, get more of that revenue. Let's bring in our professional now, Ira Jersey, Chief Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Ira, let's begin with this morning's retail sales and the impact it's going to have on the economy. Disappointing Halloween sales. Yeah, so the, the retail sales numbers certainly weren't good, and in particular, what we call the control group. So that's the uh, uh, those are the sectors that actually go directly into GDP. So the fact that um, that that missed pretty big by by four tenths, and uh, and was also revised down for September, I think just shows you that some of the optimism and some of the uh, you know initial thoughts of a, any kind of V-shaped recovery have to go out the window. Hey, Ira, you know, looking at the 10-year Treasury here, you know, 86 basis points roughly, it seems like we've been in this pretty tight trading range in and around 90 basis points. Any reason to think that that changes in the maybe near to intermediate term? So I think in the near term, if you get continued risk off moves, so you get equities moving lower and, um, you know, things like, you know, maybe gold prices going up and oil prices falling, that, that you might actually see a return down toward the uh, um, down toward the 65 kind of handle on uh, on 10 year yield. So so another 20 basis points. But but basically, broadly, I, I think we're going to stay in this range um, for quite a while. It, it's it, what's going to break us, I think, above uh, that 95 ish basis points where where we tested a couple of times last week, um, I think it has to be a vaccine. I think it has to be that, hey, we're rolling out a vaccine, here's the pace, and 2022, 2023 growth looks like it might be more, um, you know, I don't want to say normal, but but certainly better than uh, we're currently, uh, the, the market's currently anticipating. So, um, and, and the other way is, is you know, we don't get a vaccine, right? And, and we continue to have rolling shutdowns and reopenings, which makes for a very uneven economy, uh, continued, you know, very very slow, um, uh, slow wage growth, causing inflation expectations to remain very tame. So, so, so I think I think basically the push and pull that that we've had the last couple of months persists at least into the new year. Um, you know, a couple of other things, though, Paul could break us out of it. For example, if the uh, if the government does get together and and Congress and uh, whoever the new president is pass a reason 
presumably big fiscal stimulus, I think then there is the possibility that even with without a vaccine, you could wind up seeing uh, yields break uh, break 1% again on the 10-year. I just want to point out some news coming in that Republican Senator Chuck Grassley says he's going to quarantine. He's waiting test results after being exposed to COVID-19. But of course, this has implications for the Shelton nomination, which might have happened today. But it looks like now with Grassley sort of by the wayside, her nomination, which would likely fail, won't happen today. A spokesman has confirmed that Grassley will not vote today. What's your thinking on Judy Shelton, Ira, and how much of an impact she'll have at the Fed? It does look likely that she'll still get nominated at some point, but it'll probably be in a few weeks' time instead. Yeah, so so I, you know, obviously, as a member of the Fed, she'll have some some say and some input. I, I you know, one thing that uh, tends to happen is when when a lot of people who seem to be ideologues one way or the other, they get appointed to the Supreme Court or the Federal Reserve, where you don't have to r- report to the political establishment. They, they tend to moderate their views quite a lot, and and also I think, you know, given that she, that she'll be part of a committee, right? That she'll be part of both the Board of Governors as well as the um, the, the Federal Open Market Committee. Um, you know, she is a voice, and maybe she'll be a loud voice, and, and perhaps she'll dissent occasionally, depending on what policies are suggested by the uh, by the majority of the committee. But but she is just one member of the committee, and and it's it's not dissimilar to you know a chair going in, and you might think that the chair was going to be particularly dovish or hawkish, and you realize that all of a sudden that they're not, and and a big part of that is because of the committee aspect of of the Federal Reserve, and and I don't think that one member in the Board of Governors is going to change that meaningfully. So, Ira, there's some talk here, uh, the Fed extending its bond purchases. What are your thoughts there? So when you say extending, I take it you mean that they're going to uh, not buy as much in the front end and buy more uh, yes. buy more longer term securities. Yeah. So so that's something that we looked at a couple of uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I think that in the first half of next year, in the first quarter, maybe the Federal Reserve may consider t- doing that. And, and in particular, they might do that if um, uh, under two circumstances. One is if bond yields do go up because you get a big fiscal stimulus, the Federal Reserve won't won't like the fact that you have ten year yields up one and a half percent, they'll be happy that the market is pricing for a rebound in the economy, but they'll be worried that such a large move in, in bond yields might hamper that growth in, in the future, so so they could extend out the maturities. Um, the, the the other reason why they might do that is just because they don't want to buy a whole lot more of, of security. So right now, they're buying $80 billion of treasuries and $40 billion a month of, of mortgage-backed securities. You know, that that's quite a lot, and, and I think that they're worried that, you know, you know, they, they worry about their impact on market function, how big their balance sheet gets. They become, uh, you know, worry for some some people in the political establishment. You know, do, do they do they have such a large balance sheet that they can never ever, um, you know, get rid of it and unwind it? So, so, so I do think that there are limits, and and the easiest thing for them to do is just buy more market risk, which means buying more longer term securities. Um, so, so my colleague uh, Angela Monolatos uh, put out a piece a couple of weeks ago, noting that even without any new New bonds coming into the market um, that the Fed right now could buy another trillion pl- dollars of, uh, of long-term securities. Hey, Ira, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Ira Jersey, Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.